I'm Alex Mozed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. The last segment I was recording last week was this, this kind of uh, my experiences as a founder going through difficult times and how if you're a founder of a tech startup, um, you know, wh- what are you feeling and what should you be doing right now? When you think about this idea of who is pandemic proof, right? There are kind of these three main buckets. You have, uh, in any industry that's ripe for disruption, you have large tech monopolies, you have the traditional incumbents, and you have the tech startups. And what we're seeing is that, very simply, um, the tech monopolies, the larger tech monopolies, the platform conglomerates that we're talking about here, are actually going to be able to thrive during these periods of turmoil. They're going to be able to continue to invest in growth when their smaller tech competitors are not able to. They're going to be able to make acquisitions or investments at uh, discounted prices and valuations uh, based upon their strategic priorities. The traditional incumbents also have similar opportunities, but traditionally it's been difficult for them to branch out and embrace new tech-driven disruptive business models. So what we see now is a very unique moment in, in, uh, in time where these tech startups need help. And we're going to touch on this more about this kind of lack of liquidity uh, for tech startups in a second. But, uh, but these large incumbents have a big opportunity to, to, uh, to fill this void. What we're seeing from a pandemic-proof standpoint, though, is you see the, for example, we saw Airbnb this week announce that they raised a billion dollars from private equity firms to help them get through this period of time. Now, by no means is a hospitality short-term rental business pandemic-proof, but you're seeing that the larger tech platform businesses here, in this case, Airbnb, they're not turning to venture capital to solve this liquidity crisis for them. Instead, they're turning to private equity. And the unfortunate thing in all of this is that you don't see venture capital stepping up. So I'm going to touch on that more in a second. But how are we seeing these large tech monopolies? They're still doing deals here. Apple bought Dark Sky. Uh, This week it was announced. I mean, obviously this deal was in motion for a while leading up to uh, this announcement here. But they're buying Dark Sky, which is a great weather app, and they're shutting it off on Android, right? So they're, they're saying goodbye to probably half of its revenue stream because they want to have it be an exclusive app uh, on, on the iPhone. You're seeing um, OfferUp and LetGo merge. OLX is a public company. They're kinda, they kind of own a bunch of these like Craigslist-esque marketplaces. So you're seeing some consolidation. These are rivaling uh, kind of like secondhand good marketplaces. In the United States, offer up and let go. There's a third one called Mercari, which I think is now going to come under more pressure to uh, to make a move here. But you're seeing some consolidation in industries where you have a big backer. So OLX is actually funding this now combined entity. They're going to own a 40% stake in the combined entity, but they're putting money into this deal, into offer up to help make this merger possible. They also are the owner of let go. So you're kind of doing a roll up here, but you're seeing these tech companies that had been burning cash and competing against each other. Now you're seeing the coronavirus kind of push these companies uh, to to merge together, but you're getting that capital is injected from the larger public company in OLX. So you're seeing that happen. 
And you're seeing some of these VC firms still raise big rounds. We saw General Catalyst here close a $2.3 billion fund in the past week. Then we saw Insight close a $9.5 billion fund. The title here is misleading. It says to help support portfolio companies through the pandemic. That's a lie. That's fake news. That was more of an afterthought. This fund had been months and months and months in, in, in the fundraising process. They have a small portion of this money here is what they're saying is going to be allocated to help their portfolio. We're going to touch on that in a second. But generally, what companies are pandemic proof outside of the obvious where you know you have these hospitality industries and industries that uh, just when you're sheltering in place, you can't operate. Okay, I don't need to talk about those. But what you're generally seeing is the larger businesses, particularly the tech monopolies, larger businesses with healthier balance sheets are actually going to be able to come through this and I think actually um, accelerate growth over the mid to long term because of this. And the smaller companies, companies with weaker balance sheets, even platforms that are in plat that are in the single digit billion multi, you know, single digit billion dollar market cap um, are having a much tougher time, whether the storm, certainly tech startups and uh, small businesses and so on and so forth. The next topic here is this liquidity for tech startups, right? And so I actually have a, a gripe with how venture capital has been handling the pandemic. When Sequoia first issued that letter in early March, saying, you know, this is the black swan of the next 10 years. Coronavirus is here. You need to take drastic action. I criticized that letter because it was all doom and gloom. Where was the support from Sequoia to say, we believe in you? Where We, Sequoia, are going to try to um, either raise additional funds or reallocate part of our funds to support you with either either, you know, debt or convertible notes or just, you know, uh, creative uh, financing options to help our portfolios get through this. So I think there's been a huge lack of leadership from the VC community. Basically, the whole VC community is on pause and their excuse is that they are reassessing strategy. That just means we're not doing anything until we see where the dust settles and we see where valuations settle and we see what the lasting impacts of the coronavirus are going to be. Not a very kind of, uh, you know, uh, progressive statement for the industry that's supposed to support riskier, more innovative businesses, right? You'd think they'd be trying to be at the forefront of figuring out how to support these really great companies. I know multiple platform startups that were at break even or close to break even six weeks ago. And now they only have a few months of runway. I mean, it is a travesty what's happening to very strong, fundamentally strong businesses that, you know, are in the hospitality or certain sectors of, of, of the market that have a, you know, 80% drop off in revenue. You know, how do you plan for that? It's very difficult. It's basically near impossible. So anyway, um, I have a gripe with VCs and how they're handling this, but that presents an opportunity. As we're seeing with Airbnb is it's presenting an opportunity for private equity. I've spoken already on the show weeks ago about how private equity has a war chest of trillions of dollars that they're going to be able to deploy and get great deals. This Airbnb deal, they took a discount to their last valuation, which was from 2017, by the way. 2017. You had the rest of 2017, you had 2018, you had 2019 with amazing growth numbers for Airbnb and they're taking discount. That's Airbnb, a multi-billion dollar company that probably should have gone public in retrospect. 
very strong company. Airbnb, I'll give them props, by the way, is also paying out $250 million to help ease uh, the pain of, of their producers who are, are, who are having cancellations. So that's good by them. They probably knew this billion dollars was company. They announced this eight days ago. So I don't know if they would have done that if, if they didn't think they had another billion dollars on the way. But still, if you think about platform companies uh, not having employees who are producing that value in, in that sense, right? You know, platforms have producers. Producers are creating the value that, that the platform is enabling that value to be consumed. Those people are not employed by the platform. Those assets don't sit on the balance sheet of the platform. That's why these businesses are asset light. But I think the producer community for each one of these platforms will remember which of the platforms were there to help them in a time of need. It's not like you can just, you know, you're not laying these people off. Airbnb isn't laying off these people or, you know, can't, you know, canceling all these uh, long-term contracts. They just don't exist. So, you know, I'm kind of surprised that Uber hasn't been more aggressive. And in, in, I mean, Uber has been transferring work and, 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 and trying to have their drivers do more work on Uber Eats. So that's kind of been the thing they've been trying to do. Um, but again, I think the producers will remember in the time of need, just like employees remember, in the time of need, what companies, uh, say in the food distribution industry, you're hearing a lot about kind of some of the big food distributors freezing, hiring, possibly doing some layoffs. Employees remember, just like producers remember, who was there when the times got tough, who was there to try and do, you know, maybe you didn't make me whole, but you tried. So very difficult for tech platform businesses that are not at break even, Airbnb is not at break even, to be actually doling out you know, uh, this kind of support in, in these difficult times. So tech businesses, tech startups have a very tough time to find liquidity. Now, the, the ironies continue. There's this article. I don't even know why these articles get written. Should tech startups apply for emergency loans? Confusion, division, reign. Okay, this is a real article in a real publication. Don't be surprised from what I'm about to read to you. The venture capital community remains divided over whether VC-backed startups should even apply for the loans in the first place, seeing them as intended to save Main Street businesses, not privileged tech workers. Who writes this stuff? This is supposed to be a tech-friendly publication. These tech startups are in dire straits. They aren't profitable. And all their fundraising prospects just dried up overnight because the VCs have gone on hiatus. And so this article is seriously saying that, and, and you even have this guy, Joe Lonsdale, I, I like this guy. I don't know what he's on right now, but controversial opinion, most of my sector doesn't need these government loans. This guy has founded multiple tech businesses. He's a partner at this 8VC uh, VC firm. Look at this. Good companies with PEVC backing can find capital to keep going even now. It's more important to get SMBs money and, and, and dollars to hourly workers. I would... A thousand percent disagree with you, Joe. You don't have VC helping out these startups. You have VC. I haven't seen any news from 8VC, your VC firm, to, to announce a uh, venture debt fund or, or bridge financing for these VC firms. Airbnb is raising from private equity, not VC. How many tech startups have the ability to raise from private equity? Only the largest of the tech startups. So 
Tech startups are in a very difficult time. VCs aren't funding, despite what Joe is proclaiming here. And they don't have, and banks aren't lending. No way are banks lending right now, especially to unprofitable tech startups. And their only option is these programs like PPP. So absolutely, they should be applying for these. The tech community is a very important part of our economy. And as I was mentioning, you have very strong businesses that were at or very close to break even pre-coronavirus that now, because their revenue has fallen off of a cliff, they only have a few months of runway. What are they supposed to do? And their VCs are not stepping up to the plate. So it's a huge travesty what the VC community is not doing in a time of crisis. And I think there's a lot of VC firms out there that you know say, "Oh, we are founder friendly. We're we're uh, uh you know we're here to help the founders." It's a load of baloney. If that was true, you would see a very different response from the VC community right now. There are a myriad of articles showing the power shifting from startups to VCs, and I think the VCs are kind of enjoying having all this power. So, what is the opportunity here? The opportunity are for the large incumbents, the traditional incumbents that are in a battle against the tech monopolies to help with these tech startups. These large incumbents, they know that they need to embrace new platform marketplace driven business models. And right now there's a very unique opportunity to provide, say, for example, very short term debt uh, tranches or bridge loans to tech businesses, platform businesses, that have a strong business model, that maybe had strong traction before coronavirus, eventually things are going to bounce back. And this window of opportunity is not going to be around forever. And so there are many tech startups that need a bridge loan. They need some debt financing in the short term. Banks aren't giving it. VCs aren't giving it. They're not big enough to go to private equity. The tech monopolies want to see them fail so they can either just acquire the, 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 uh, the people are just, uh, you know, buy the IP at, you know, at a, at a fire sale. The tech monopolies want these tech startups to fail so they can just kind of uh, take the, the leftovers for themselves. And so who else do the tech startups have to help them? The traditional incumbents, oddly enough. And so I actually know many CEOs. These are strong CEOs, visionary CEOs that their core business is not having an easy time. But they know that eventually the economy is going to bounce back. Eventually, we're going to get through this. And digital transformation and embracing new business models is still going to happen in their industry. And so now is a perfect time where you can help a really good startup, provide some debt vehicles to them. And what do you get in return for that? You get warrants. And you get the ability to invest in these tech startups at a later date. Once you have more conviction, once you have a uh, maybe more time to actually have a partnership or uh, work on some proof of concepts or do some trials with, could be multiple tech startups in a space, right? If you were to allocate a few million dollars in, 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 in venture debt to a few tech startups that you probably would want to do a deal with one of them and you get some warrants and then you go get your conviction, you go get to work with them more closely, you see what kind of synergies they share with your core business. And then you're able to basically, for the ones that you don't invest in, you get your debt back eventually, hopefully. And for the one that you do want to invest or acquire, you now have the warrants that you can execute at a later date and still preserve a premium discount to, to what their last valuation was. Airbnb has taken a discount on their 2017 valuation 
then you know smaller tech startups just as a rule are going to be sharing material discounts uh, if you can help them solve this liquidity crisis. And so I think this is one of the um, really only or best opportunities right now for how tech startups can bridge these difficult times outside of using these government options, PPP and the disaster relief loans and so on and so forth. But that might not be enough. Or these tech startups might need to lay off still a material size or or portion of their business to make it through. And it's just going to be that much harder for them to build that team up and and get back to par. Um, And so they're going to have some very difficult decisions to make over the next few months here. This isn't a quarters. This is a months type of crisis. And how can uh, large incumbents that know that they're eventually going to need to do a deal with one of these tech startups, help fill in the gap and be a hero? Because we're seeing a lack of that from the VC side, and and it's honestly a huge disappointment. Um, So that's some of what we're seeing with this liquidity crisis with tech startups. Um, The other thing that we're seeing is, you know, some of these, we're starting to get an idea of what these lasting impacts are going to be because of the coronavirus. On Amazon Prime Video, you've seen an interesting uh, option to be able to rent movies that are in the th- that would be in the theater for 20 bucks. Uh, I think movie theaters will never be the same. Not because people are going to be concerned about going into a movie theater and, and germs and that kind of stuff. Instead, I think the movie studios just gave away a huge amount of leverage to the tech monopolies, Amazon in this case. And and I think they might be doing something similar with Apple and and other players, maybe Google. But once you give $20, once you set the price tag at $20, can't raise that price tag in the future. And once you now set consumer behavior that I can now watch a movie that's in the theater for $20 from the comfort of my own home, how do you change that consumer behavior? How do you roll that back? I think it's going to be very difficult. And I think you're going to see, A, it's going to take a while until people can go back to movie theaters. So I don't think this is just a flash in the pants, few week kind of thing. This is going to be a many months kind of behavior change here where movies that aren't going to be delayed until movie theaters come back, movies that are now would be in the theater. Now can you can pay 20 bucks, watch it from home. I think it's going to be very difficult for movie theaters to regain the same window of exclusivity that they had before coronavirus. I don't think they're going to be able to claw that back. Maybe they can claw some of it back, but even if they claw some of it back, the window of exclusivity from when it's in the theater versus now direct to, you know, direct uh, on demand on, on one of these video streaming products is going to be significantly shorter. And I also don't think that the movie studios are going to have much leverage to increase that price in the future either. So they're pretty much pegged at 20 bucks, which by the way, 20 bucks is, I don't know, two things of popcorn these days, not even including the tickets. So economically, it's also much cheaper to just watch it from your home. Might even be more comfortable. Certainly it's going to be more safe for the next number of quarters. So I think that's going to be very difficult for movie theaters to bounce back even once the pandemic fears have gone away. The other thing is with 
temperature scanners. I've been I've been trying to research some companies here that do thermal imaging temperature scanners. I think that metal scanners are out and and thermal imaging temperature scanners are in. There's a there's this one company that seems like they're the main player in the space. Uh, what's their name here? Yeah. FLIR Systems, F-L-I-R. It's the world's largest commercial company specializing in the design and production of thermal imaging cameras, components, and imaging sensors. They actually have an FDA-approved thermal imaging temperature device already on the market. I think they're one of the only ones with this FDA-approved temperature scanning device. And um, surprisingly, their stock is way down from, you know, roughly 60 bucks a share at its peak. It's now at about $33 a share. I am not a temperature thermal imaging scanner expert, but from the little bit of research I've done, they seem to be one of the leaders. And I think these kinds of companies, I think there's been rumors that there's going to be yet another stimulus infrastructure bill. I think you're going to have hundreds of billions of dollars allocated to health pandemic infrastructure. And I think one of those key things is early detection systems. Whenever you're going to Asia, you see these things everywhere. Whenever you're in a, any kind of Asian airport, boom, they've got these. Um, I think, you know, you're going to see these at airports. You're going to see that these at stadiums, any kind of mass transit uh, terminal or location, right? These kinds of high profile or, or, you know, any kind of high security area that you're going into, you're going to see these types of things deployed. You're going to see a lot of money put into testing infrastructure and how can we do more rapid, um, immediate testing and have a network that is trying to find this kind of contact tracing infrastructure across the country. Those are going to be two no-brainers. You're going to see a huge investment in this from an infra, from an infrastructure standpoint, right? You need to kind of build out the capabilities of these things. Obviously, you're going to see telemedicine and 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 these other kinds of uh initiatives warrant more investment as well but i think uh metal scanners are out and temperature scanners are in in a very big way um you're seeing clearly uh huge changes in online spending so we found this article recently here about uh the top 100 kind of e-commerce increases and decreases March of 2020 to March of 2019. So lots of stuff that you would expect. Disposable gloves is, is the top. You have uh, dumbbells on here, people needing to work out from home and all these kinds of things. Um, and then you have the top 100 uh, declining, right? Any kind of travel, hospitality, sports-related gear is uh, is cratering. and and so on and so forth. But I think the general trend here is that everyone is needing to buy stuff online. And so when we look at the progression of e-commerce spend and that pickup for ordering your groceries online, these are these are user behaviors that a growing number of the population were partaking in pre-coronavirus. But now for the next number of months, this is going to be how Many, many people transact, certainly, hopefully, a large majority of people transact. And that behavior, I think, is going to be here to stay. And I think you're actually going to see an acceleration of the pain that the retail stores were experiencing pre-corona. That is only going to be accelerated post-corona. 
it'll obviously be better than during Corona since you can't go to a retail store at all. But post Corona, I don't think retail stores, I don't think, you know, going into a grocery store, um, these kinds of behaviors are going to pick up and go and return to where they were pre Corona. I think they're going to be more suppressed and the online version, ordering things through marketplaces, e-commerce sites, Instacart, uh, these kinds of things are going to remain and, and, and continue to grow much more quickly than they were before. The last trend here is that we clearly are going to see a... We already had this trend going for the past few years in the United States, but now I think it's going to be reinvigorated, which is going to be buy American. What are critical supply chain, critical infrastructure that... Let's just take medical supplies. Um, that we need those things to be uh, made and purchased in the United States. So what you're seeing is that the United States doesn't even need to pass a bill or a law to start this change. If you think about the purchasing power of the United States government, just purely in medical supplies alone, you have uh, the VA, you have the Medicare and Medicaid, you have other government programs for, um, you know, uh, social welfare and so on and so forth. That a large amount of healthcare spend, medical supply spend, is controlled in one way or another by the government. And so that means that the government can simply say, "Hey, purely for say the thirty percent of spend that we control of this pool of medical supplies, we are only going to buy medical supplies if they're made in the United States." And if that supply chain, you know, a, a certain amount of it is is all from within the United States. And you're going to start to see these things, I think, happening very quickly here in a number of areas outside of medical supplies. I think when we just think about critical areas for the U.S. in terms of manufacturing capabilities uh, for medical supplies and just infrastructure-related manufacturing when you think about supply chain uh, infrastructure and all of these different areas that we've now seen come under pressure where the fact of the matter is if it's not made in the United States, you're seeing other countries uh, put export bans or export restrictions to make sure that they have these supplies for their citizens. And look, you can't really blame them. We are using the Defense Production Act on U.S. companies to to make sure that they're bringing enough product to to the U.S. Uh, citizens as well. So you see this happening all over the place. And I think instead, it, if you think about, okay, how do we try and get the economy revving again post-corona? Um, one of the mechanisms is to try and bring more of that production back domestically to the United States. So I think you're going to see very quickly, I, th I think you're going to see government mandate that the things that it's buying, which is a lot, be made here. And then I think you're going to see a more coordinated push from a legislative standpoint that will probably be putting more restrictions on certain industries or maybe using uh, our president's favorite tool, tariffs, to try and instill that and, and have that come back. The last note here is kind of a, a fun one, which is around Quibi. So Quibi is not a platform. It just launched yesterday. And I think Quibi is going to do fantastically well. Um, this article is saying, you know, they, they had 300,000 downloads on day one and Disney Plus had 4 million. Quibi is not Disney. Uh, to, what is Quibi? Quibi 
was started by Jeffrey Katzenberg. Uh, this is, you know, he is a Hall of Fame legendary producer and director. Uh, he's raised over a billion dollars for Quibi. Meg Whitman, former CEO of eBay, is his CEO for this business. Quibi basically creates these six to eight or 10 minute long short videos. And it's this is another reason why I think movie theaters are actually going to have a much tougher time. They're taking A-list celebrities, paying them millions of dollars to create seven minute long videos. So it's kind of like a TV show in seven minutes. So if, you know, the trend here that just people have shorter and shorter attention spans and you think about the Instagrams and the TikToks of the world with these, you know, 20, 30, 45 second videos and people want this content quick and bite-sized, you know, the trend of millennials wanting to watch an hour and a half or, or God forbid, a two and a half hour long movie, the trend is pretty straightforward. It goes down. So Quibi is the answer to that. And basically Katzenberg, who's a visionary in the, in, in the industry, has seen this and said, you know what? I want to bring movie level quality content in a short form format. And I think they're going to kill it. I think there's a huge market for this. It's like short form Instagram, TikTok-esque content. That's a little bit longer, you know, six minutes. But super premium with A-list celebrities. Versus what we've seen with, um, you know, all of these large media conglomerates from AT&T and Time Warner to Disney to um, Comcast and the list goes on and on and on, launch their digital subscription offering, which is taking the existing type of content, that TV show length content or that movie length content and putting it in a digital format, right, to compete against Netflix. This is saying, yes. People want to consume this content in an app and digitally, but how are behaviors changing because of digital and because of content platforms like Instagram and TikTok and live streaming platforms, et cetera, that have shorter form content? I think Quibi is going to do extremely, extremely well. This, is, I think, is a, is a perfect gap in the market. Um, it's a linear premium content business. It's not a platform business, but again, there are there are... I think opportunities for linear businesses to do well. And I think this is a great example of, uh, of Quibi being able to really thrive in this part of the market that I think there is a, a great need for. Let me just close on a positive note. We are having a very tough week in the United States this week. Um, deaths are rising. Uh, cases are still rising. We haven't hit the peak yet. Um, I, I will say that I think that the that despite all of the hardships, that uh, consumer and investor confidence is still relatively strong compared to where it could be. When you look at the stock market and where stocks are relative to when the uh, Trump presidency started in 2017, we're actually still above from where he started. They bottomed out right around where... Um, Trump took over in 2016, 2017, but they actually never went below that. Now stocks have gone back up pretty strongly in the past few days. And, and, and on the show in the past, I've highlighted research that shows, you know, if we look at 03 SARS, that the stock market bottomed out roughly in line with when cases hit the peak and, and leveled off. I think you're starting to see that. 
Um, it might have been a little premature the past few days where you've just seen huge spikes in, in the stock market. Um, but I think we're getting pretty close. Now, I think that the Fed learned a very good lesson from the 0809 collapse where the Fed, I'd say, was a little bit slower to move in 0809. I think it's very hard for people to understand the scale at which the stimulus has really taken effect in the past few weeks alone. You have trillions of dollars from the Fed alone to stabilize markets. So if you think about debt markets and equity markets, the way I like to think about it is debt markets are the foundation. They're kind of like the cement or the tectonic plate. And then you kind of have like trees and buildings on top of them, right? And um, the trees are going to move the building sway in New York City, right? The buildings actually sway like a foot on either direction. Um, and that's normal. And maybe you have some trees that are, have fallen over because of the pandemic and we had a huge, you know, huge crash in the stock market on, the, on March 16th. But the real reason that the equities fell so aggressively in mid-March was because the debt markets seized up. And if you've heard about Bill Ackman having these credit default swaps that he made $2 billion on, that is where he made those $2 billion. It wasn't on equities. It was that they made a bet that debt markets would seize up. And so when you have debt markets seizing up, all of the stocks are on top of that tectonic plate. So when the tectonic plate starts to falter and shake, then everything else on top goes completely haywire. So you need to stabilize debt markets. That tectonic plate needs to be sound um, to have some sense of normalcy with equities and stocks. So what you saw in mid-March was debt markets go haywire, which then meant everything else went even crazier. And that is what the, what the Fed, when they started that action initially, was to say, we are going to basically have an infinite balance sheet. We're going to invest and buy whatever we need to buy, trillions and trillions and trillions. They now have a, over $5 billion on their balance sheet. The Fed can basically just make up money. They can print as much money as they want. So they have an infinite balance sheet. And the Fed said, we are going to have infinite buying power and we will buy whatever we need to buy to stabilize the credit markets. We have never seen anything in the history of this country, maybe the world, to that degree of central bank stimulus and, 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 and liquidity. Not to mention, then you have the trillions of stimulus coming from the federal government. Now, it gets even more interesting when we dig into um, what we're seeing with PPP. So with PPP, Wells Fargo a day or two ago said that they hit their liquidity limits. They could only do $10 billion. Here it is. Wells Fargo limits stimulus SBA lending to $10 billion. And you kind of say, well, you know, what the hell is wrong with you, Wells Fargo? Like, why would you ever do this? It wasn't their choice. The, the Fed, the Federal Reserve, puts liquidity ratios and requirements on banks. So although the federal government was backing these PPP loans and, they, and the banks basically had zero risk, still on Wells Fargo balance sheet, they, these loans, if they issued over $10 billion of them, would trigger these um, liquidity ratios and, and they, would, they would be outside of them, basically. And they, so they said, we can't do more than $10 billion. What you saw the Fed do, again, you're seeing unprecedented action here. 
So the Federal Reserve announced it will establish a facility to provide term financing backed by payroll protection program loans. Basically, in a bid to free up banks' balance sheets to make more payroll protection loans, the Federal Reserve will buy those loans, which are already insured by the Small Business Association, basically the federal government. So you're having the Fed back these loans. So now Wells Fargo says, well, these loans are backed by the Fed, which means that they basically don't, they're not, they don't count as any balance sheet risk for me whatsoever. It's basically just imaginary money on my balance sheet. And it doesn't trigger any of these liquidity liquidity violations or ratios with the Fed. You're seeing an unprecedented amount of the Fed, Federal Reserve, and the federal government working hand in hand to inject trillions of dollars into the economy to stabilize things. And I think a lot of that is the reason why you haven't seen stocks go as low as maybe some would have thought. It's certainly the reason why post-mid-March, debt markets have eased up tremendously and you don't have the same amount of fear in the system that credit markets, that that tectonic plate is going to falter. You have still seen a lot of variance and a lot of crazy stuff happening with stocks and equities, uh, but that's natural. I think we're starting to get to the point here where we're hopefully seeing the peak of cases and hopefully then deaths in the United States. And then at that point, I think historically, at least historically what the numbers show, is that stock market will have bottomed out and um, stocks will improve. Now, that obviously assumes that we can continue on a path towards opening up the country and we don't have um, shelter in place and these kinds of things extended much longer than is already baked into the market's assumptions. Uh, but that said, if founders, if tech startup founders can figure out a way to make it, I think, over the next few months and bridge some of these gaps, I think we're going to start to see things improve a lot. They may not be back to normal in by the end of the year, but I think we're going to be able to see things bounce back. I think we're going to see another uh, infrastructure and stimulus bill try to then reinvigorate the economy once we have fewer restrictions on travel and, and shelter in place and these kinds of rules. Obviously, still, hospitality in these sectors are going to continue to still be hard hit. And I think you're going to have these lasting impacts that we were talking about on the show here from a consumer behavior standpoint. I think those, those that we were talking about, those are still going to be here to stay. But from an economy standpoint and from an optimism standpoint, I think there's a lot to be hopeful for. And I hope that all the founders out there can make it through this and can make some of those difficult phone calls, can have transparency with their teams, can figure out a way to get through this, um, and don't listen to Joe Lonsdale about not using PPP. On that note, thank you very much for joining us, and I will talk to you soon.